Thanks to the internet, we live in an age of wonders. Right? I mean, hardly a day goes by when somebody's amazing story doesn't hit our email inbox. Or, or when we, hardly a day goes by when we don't get some amazing picture or video. You know, hardly a day goes by when there's not something just incredible posted on our Facebook homepage or in our Twitter streams. And if you don't know what a Twitter stream is, we'll, we'll find a, a 10-year-old child who can translate that for you. I'm just saying. I mean, think about it. Without the internet, would we ever have seen the pictures of Snowball, the world's largest cat, 87 pounds, 69 inches from nose to tail? Without the internet, would we ever have seen the thrilling rescue of the scuba diver who's just about to be attacked by the shark? And and without the internet, would we ever have seen thrilling video like this. Just wait. Now, now here's the deal. All three of those things are fake. All three of them. All three of those amazing, blood-curdling, shocking things are hoaxes. They're not real. Today we begin a series called Wonder. And for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the wonders that Jesus did. A few of the instances when he did these amazing miracles that changed lives and destinies. And here's what we got to know. The things that Jesus did were real. They really happened. They really occurred. Real people were really involved. What I hope that that, that I can convey and what I hope that we see when we wrap things up in just a few weeks is that Jesus wants to do the miraculous in our lives. There's a miraculous turnaround for you because Jesus is involved. The impossible is possible when Jesus gets involved, and He will if we have faith. Faith. Jesus said it would move mountains. (laughs) So why do the mountains so often seem to move our faith instead of the other way around? I think it's because of things just like we just saw. We're used to amazing things being proved false. We're used to seeing this incredible video and finding out a few days later that it was faked. We know about smoke and mirrors, right? 
We know about the, the hidden strings and computer-generated graphics. Uh, we've seen the masked magician on TV expose the tricks behind the tricks. We've passed along that unbelievable email only to have somebody downstream in our, in our email uh, address book actually go to Snopes.com and, and share with us and everybody else that, hey, you passed along one that was not true. You ever notice how people don't really appreciate it when you do that? Are you just trying to help them? But the result is that we're jaded and skeptical and suspicious, even when we don't want to be. There's a, there's a verse of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's, it's not where we're going to stay, but I want to go to that because two reasons. It gives us a great definition of faith, and, and secondly, it's one of those verses that a lot of people are somewhat familiar with, even if you, people don't go to church very often or read their Bibles. They kind of know what Hebrews 11:1 1 says, and what it says is this. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It is the assurance or it gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Confidence and assurance. Faith is confident assurance. So why is it that our faith is so often unsure and uncertain? Now don't get me wrong. I believe in God. Absolutely. I believe He can do all things. But the truth is, I have an easier time believing God will do things for you than I do believing that He will do things for me. Anybody relate to that? I mean, if you, if you, I don't know why it is, but if you've got some wild, off-the-charts, crazy person who doesn't know God, and you ask me, Pastor, can we pray that God will reach this person? I will say, absolutely, let's pray. I believe God will reach them. And I, and I do believe it. I believe with all my heart that He will. But if that person is in my family, and someone says, let's pray for him, I'm like, knock yourself out. I know how bad they are. I don't even think God can reach them. I, if somebody is sick in your family, I'll be the first one to say, let's pray, let's pray that God will heal them. And I believe that He heals and that He will heal and that He does heal. But if somebody is sick in my family, I'm like, oh my goodness, they're going to die. <laughs> I just have an easier time believing for others than I do for myself. If you got your Bibles with you, turn over to Mark chapter 9. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you go to get to Luke or John or Acts or Romans, you've gone too far. Mark chapter 9. We're going to meet a man who is just like us. Now here's the that shouldn't surprise us too much. I mean, you've heard me say this over and over and over and over again. The people in the Bible are real people who really lived in in, in they really existed in real history. And they're people just like you and I. And this person, this man in this encounter we're going to read today is just like us. He was a, he was a man who's like some people who have kind of some sort of faith. Kind of sort of faith. He kind of sort of believed Jesus, but, but not really all the way. He wasn't completely in. He didn't fully believe. I think that we can relate to some of his faith struggles. To, to kind of set the stage, we need to know that there's a, there's a boy 
with an evil spirit in control of him. Now, we don't know exactly how old the boy is. I think that he's probably um, 10, 12, maybe young teenager because of something the dad says a little later. Jesus asked him how long has he been like this, and he says since he was a child, and he uses the word for toddler, so he was at least older than he wasn't a little, little boy. But he's, the evil spirit is, is in control of him, and, and he needs to be healed. And the disciples tried to heal him, and they can't do it. They try to do the miracle, and they mess up. And the Pharisees and religious people who followed Jesus around, watching for him to do something wrong, make a mistake, do something they could criticize or grab hold of or point to and say, this is not who you thought he was, they see this as an opportunity to start a fight. <laughs> And so an argument breaks out between them and the disciples of Jesus. And that's when Jesus walks in the scene, and we will pick up in verse 16. Uh, Mark 9, verse 16. Jesus said to them, uh, what is all this arguing about? One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Now pause there just for a moment. And imagine the pain of being a parent and watching your child go through something like that. And you know what's true? In a group this big, some of us don't have to imagine it. Because we've lived it. We've lived through having to watch a child suffer. Maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually. You know, when we go through stuff, it hurts. But when someone we love goes through stuff, it hurts on a whole different level, doesn't it? It just impacts us in a different way, a more intense way. And that's how this dad is feeling. He has watched his boy grow up in agony, and it is killing the father. He's taking him to doctors. He's taking him to, to specialists. He, now he's brought him to the followers of Jesus, but nothing is working. This is where he's at. Pick up in verse 19. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, Since he was a little boy. The Spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Uh-oh. You see it? The Father says, have mercy on us and help us. And what's the next word? If. That's a very key word. Have mercy on us, Jesus. If you can. Help us, Jesus. If you can. There's a lot of us who are right there, right now. I mean, something, something big has come up, and all of the experts are saying, it's over. 
What you want is not going to happen. What you don't want is going to happen. This thing is not going to turn out the way you need it or want it to turn out. And we are saying, God, if you can help us, you might be able to. I'm just not sure if you can. Others are coming at that from, a, from another direction. Oh, I know God can. My if is this. I wonder if He will. Yeah, I believe that He can, but why hasn't He? It's kind of, sort of, faith. I think you might be able to do this, God, but I'm not sure. I mean, I've seen you do other things, but I don't know if you'll be able to do this for me. If. You can. Jesus replies in verse 23. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Now, I like to put the tone in there. We don't know exactly how Jesus said that, but maybe it's just me. I think Jesus sounds a little offended. I mean, I, I don't think he's mad at anybody. I just think he's exasperated. Hey, wait, you just said you brought your son to me so that I could heal him? Well, here I am. And now you're going to say, if you can? And then look what Jesus says next. Anything is possible if a person believes. If anything is possible if a person believes. Bless you. Anything is possible if a person believes. Folks, that is the rock in our shoe. We want that to be true. But we're afraid it's not. So we face some kind of major problem. I mean, maybe our marriage is in big trouble. We don't think things are ever going to work out. So, Do we believe that it's possible for God in His love and sovereign power to actually heal and restore our marriage so that it is better than it's ever been? Do we believe God can do that? Because guess what? He can. Anything is possible if we believe. Or we've got a, a, a child, one of our children, or a grandchild maybe, and we love them with all our heart, but they're going the wrong way fast, and we've tried everything we can to bring them back. They're making dangerous decisions, and we are left to wonder what's going to happen to them. Can God bring them back? Listen to me. There is no doubt about it. Anything is possible. Every doctor from here to Lafayette to Indianapolis to Mayo's, this is, that's it, six months and somebody's going to die. Do we believe God can heal that person? Because He can. Absolutely. If we believe anything is possible. And let me tell you, that's good news. Because there's some of us sitting here right now with things going on in our lives and we're saying if, if this one thing were different, God, if it's possible, just touch this one area. Just do this one thing, God. Just heal this one relationship. Just fix this one situation. Give me some hope in this one area, God, if you can, please do. And Jesus says, anything is possible 
if a person believes. Now watch how the dad responds. I told you, he's just like we are. Verse 24. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Kind of. I believe, but not completely. I've got to push past unbelief. I want to believe. And sometimes I do, but things haven't been working out lately. and So it's hard for me. I, I want to believe, and I did last week, but I don't have so much faith right now. I want to believe, but I'm just not sure that I can. Do you get a sense of his, of his passion? The Greek word there translated cry out literally means to shriek or to scream. In, in its original usage and meaning, it meant the squawk of a raven. Now, we were walking into the store yesterday in Lafayette, and up on a light pole in the parking lot was this crow just squawking at everybody. I mean, it, everybody that was walking in the store was looking at this crow. He was shrieking, he was crying out. This father cries out. This is not an intellectual exercise for this man. This is, you know, I struggle somewhat with doubt, and uh, that's just natural for a person in my situation. He is crying out. I want to believe, but I've I got to get past this unbelief. Why is it that we want to have faith, but we often don't? Why is it that we have tension and questions and struggles with our faith? I want to show you some obstacles to faith, some obstacles to real faith, because most of us have dealt with one or more of them at one time or another. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write this down. The first obstacle to faith is faith that is sign-seeking. Sign-seeking. Most of us have probably said something like this before. God, if you will just get me out of this, I'll follow you forever. If you'll just give me a sign, God, get me out of this situation, then I will know you're real and I will follow you. How many of you have ever said anything like that? Raise your hands. Okay, look around and the ones whose hands are not raised, do not buy a used car from them because they will lie to you about that as well. We've all done it. But here's the problem with looking for a sign. The sign is not the real thing. Hey, the sign is not the point. You're not hearing me. If we're traveling and looking for a hotel and we see a sign that says hotel three miles, we don't go sleep on the sign. Right? It's not the real thing. It's pointing us to the real thing. Too many people want to sleep on the sign because the sign's the thing. I am so weary of people who are chasing after signs. 
The sign is, you know what Jesus said to people who wanted a sign, who were demanding a sign? First of all, he called them an unbelieving generation, and that's a really nice way of saying that they were stupid. And then he said, there's not going to be any sign given to you except that which was the sign of Jonah. The Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth three days, three nights, and he's going to be raised again. See, the sign is not the thing. The sign points us to the real thing. And the real thing is Jesus. And the problem for us is that even if we get the sign we're looking for, it doesn't make any difference. God, if you'll just help me pass this test, I'll serve you forever. And then you get a C. Go right on doing your own thing. God, if you just get me off this roller coaster alive, you can have my life. We get off and keep right on trucking. Lord, I just pray when I get to Walmart, there'll be a parking spot right up front. Lord, I'm just believing for a parking spot right up front at Walmart. And it hadn't made a bit of difference in the way that we live. The sign is not the real thing. It points us to the real thing. And our faith has to be in the real thing and not the sign. Here's the second faith obstacle we have some experience with. Some of us are trying to get by on second-hand faith. Second-hand faith. How many of us grew up around Christians? In our families? Maybe mom or grandma? Maybe some neighbors? Yeah. And maybe because of that... um, because we grew up with some Christians around, we went to church occasionally. They took us to church, or they took us to Sunday school, vacation Bible school. Uh, maybe we got baptized when we were a little kid, or we went to confirmation classes, or uh, you know, when we got an extra point for bringing a friend, and we got a star if we learned our Bible verse, and all of that kind of stuff. But the problem is, we grew up close to the things of God, but the faith of others never became our faith. There's no such thing as second-hand faith. The, the old preachers used to say, God doesn't have any grandchildren. One time Jesus was talking to his followers and he said, what, what are people saying about me? Who do they say that, that I am? And his followers, they had answers. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. And that's kind of a neat trick because John the Baptist had just been beheaded just a little while before this. Other people say you're Elijah the prophet, and he's only been dead 1,400 years. You see, there's an element of faith in that. But it wasn't enough. Because Jesus looks Peter right in the eye and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? That's the question. Who do you say that I am? Who do I say? That he is. Who do you say that he is? Can I just tell you that it doesn't matter what mama or grandma believe? What do you believe? It doesn't matter if Papa was a preacher. What do you believe? We've got to stop trying to get by on somebody else's faith. You're not going to ride anybody's coattails into eternal life. You have to make decisions for yourself. 
about what you believe and about your faith. Well, there's a, there's a third obstacle. That one's uncomfortable for us, so we move on from that one. Maybe this one's better. There's a third faith obstacle, and that's faith that is self-centered. Self-centered faith plays out like this. Okay, God, here's what uh, I need you to do. And, and if you do this thing in this way at this time, then we're good, okay? But if God doesn't do it, then we're like, all right, God, where were you? I mean, uh, you didn't do what I asked you to do. I was doing all of this stuff for you. I, was, I, I went to Bible study. I tried to be good. And all I asked you to do was get me that promotion. No, I didn't get the promotion. So I'm not ever going to church again. That'll teach you. Hey, all I wanted was the interview. My phone never rang. So I'm not going to read my Bible anymore. Lord, I, I told you all I wanted was to be married by the time I was 30. That was the deal. Well, I'm 31 now, so forget you, God. When we have self-centered faith, we're putting ourselves in God's place. And you ain't big enough to do that. But none of us are. So when we have self-centered faith, we're trying to make the rules and the boundaries and, and set the expectations. And if things don't work out for us, then it's good by God. And let me tell you the problem with every one of these obstacles to faith. Whether it's seeking after a sign or, or having secondhand faith or, or having faith that is self-centered, it's all rooted in immaturity. It doesn't matter if you were baptized 30 years ago. If you're seeking after signs... And it doesn't matter if you've been coming to church with somebody who believes in Jesus all your life. If you are riding on their faith. And if you are trying to dictate to God how He needs to act and what He needs to do for you. You're a baby when it comes to faith. And I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm, I'm preaching to me as much as I am to you because we all struggle with faith. We are all like that father who says, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, so how do we get past that? How do we grow past that? How do we get to the place of total trust and childlike faith? How do we have real faith? Well, let me give you a couple practical things that I think speak to this issue in our lives. Things that I believe with all my heart will help you. Because I've seen them work in my life. I've seen them work in the lives of other people. Here's the first thing that we can do to build our faith. We need to immerse ourselves in God's Word. Immerse ourselves in God's Word. Romans 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Notice that it does not say faith comes by hearing the latest self-help guru. And it doesn't say that faith comes by watching the next big preacher on TBN. And it doesn't say that faith comes by reading the best-selling Christian book. And believe it or not, it doesn't even say faith comes by listening to me crack some jokes and share a few spiritual insights on Sunday morning. 
It says faith comes from hearing the Word of God. When we immerse ourselves in God's Word, it builds us up and it strengthens our faith. When we feed ourselves on the Word of God and it becomes part of our lives, it strengthens us. It, it, it causes us to have more endurance. It causes us to be more resistant to temptation. You know where the, you know where the, the, the battlefield for most sin and temptation is in our lives? It's in our mind. It's right here. That's where the battle starts. When, when Paul would tell the Corinthians that no matter what temptation you face, no matter what sin you're tempted to do, God has provided you with a way out. You know that, what that provision includes? Our minds being renewed by the Word of God. Now, I can look back in my life at times when my faith was strong and I could believe God for anything, and it was without fail those times when I was in the Word. I mean, when I was reading it and studying it, and you couldn't keep me away from it. And I can look back, and without fail, the times when I doubted and things were not going the way they should go, I was not in His Word the way I should have been. And I understand the complaints. Well, I've tried to read Scripture. I just don't get anywhere. I mean, if I start off at the beginning, you know, in Genesis, um, I do okay maybe through Genesis and part of Exodus because that's all the, the great stories, right? That's, uh, uh, you know, that's Adam and Eve, and, and that's Abraham and, and, and Jacob and, and uh, Joseph and Noah, and, and then there's Moses and the whole Ten Commandments thing. And, but then after that, I kind of, you know, we start counting people and we start listing laws. I run out of steam real quick. Hey, I'm with you. Here's the thing about the boring parts of the Bible. Don't read them. Did you read? That preacher told us not to read the Bible. No, I didn't. I told you don't read the boring parts. When I start reading in the New Testament, um, I read about this guy whose name I can't pronounce, begat this guy whose name I can't pronounce, and, and on and on and on, and I don't get anywhere. Don't start there. Here's a couple things that will help you. One is get a Bible you can understand. <laughs> Please, will you get a Bible you can understand? I mean, the King James Version is a classic example of ancient literature. And we don't talk like that anymore. So find you a Bible you can read and understand. A modern translation of the Bible. And when you start reading, start reading about Jesus. Start with the Gospel of Mark. It's kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version, and it's, it's fast-moving. It's shorter than all the other Gospels. When you get through with that one, go to John, because that's the perspective of how much God loved us and, and how His love was the reason He sent Jesus and, and what that means. And then read Luke, and then go to Matthew, and, and, and skip the first chapter if you want to, or part of the first chapter. Skip the family tree stuff and just start reading about the birth of Jesus. Skip Start reading about Jesus, but whatever you do, do it with consistency. If you will read the Bible 15 minutes a day, you can read the whole thing in a year. And, and yes, there will be some things that you don't understand, some things that don't make sense to you, but they might next year. They might next year, and in the meantime, you're feeding yourself on the Word, and what's happening is your mind is being renewed. That old garbage of the world is being pushed out, and the truth of God's Word is soaking in, and when that happens, your faith will grow. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is living and active. That it's like a sword sharpened on both sides. It can cut, comes going. It can even divide the bone from the marrow. Get yourself in the Word of God. But don't stop there. Because we also have to act on God's Word. It's not enough to, to believe that it's the truth. We've got to do something about it. Listen, the Bible says that, that demons, those evil spirits who are aligned with Satan, that they believe in God. And that belief makes them tremble with terror. That's the last time that belief in God made you tremble. Or me. If you read in... Uh, I'm going to say the wrong chapter. Somewhere in the early part of the Gospels. Where Jesus goes out in the, in the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. How does, how does Satan tempt him every time? How does Satan tempt him every time? He quotes Scripture. That's right. The devil knows the Bible. He knows it better than you do. He knows it better than I do. He believes. So what's the difference? What's the difference in how they believe and how we believe? The difference is that we don't just believe it. We don't just agree that it's true in our mind. We believe it in such a way that we are willing to stake our lives on it. We act on what it says. One of the most challenging scriptures in the Bible is in James chapter 2, verse 26. It says, just as the body is dead without breath, so faith is dead without good works. See, faith has to have some proof, some evidence that it's really there. And how is that? What is that proof? The way that we live. Ever been to a church that just seemed dead? I mean, no, no spark, no life. I mean, in places like that, you hear a lot of spiritual words. But you don't see anybody acting on them. You hear a lot of spiritual talk, but you don't see any anticipation or excitement or progress or movement. Listen, faith without actions, faith on Sunday without living it on Monday is dead. The Bible says it's a joke. It's a joke. Either we believe that God is real and that reality changes everything about the way that we live or what we're doing here this morning is a first-class joke and we ought to leave here, sell the building, and never come back. So, so, so I didn't get a motion. We'll move on. I've I got to say this, though. Our faith doesn't become real when we get the outcome we want. Our faith becomes real when we trust God so much that we will do whatever He says regardless of the outcome. Did you hear me? Here's how we know we have real faith. When we declare the goodness and glory of God, even if nobody gets healed. When we praise God if the situation doesn't change and I don't get what I want, 
Real faith is not in the outcome. It's in the character of God. It's in the heart of who God is. He's a good God, and He deserves to be the object of our faith just because He is God. Some of us... Some of us are waiting on God to do something. And God's just waiting on us to worship Him because He is. Now, most of you probably never had this experience like I have. Where a child comes and kind of butters you up. Never had that experience, have you? Where they, isn't it terrible? It's, sometimes it's terrible to be a parent. I mean, it's, you know, it's equal parts wisdom and guerrilla warfare to be a parent. It really is. But your child is so nice and so sweet and so helpful. And, oh, I'll take care of that. Let me do that. Here, let me help you with that. And all you can think is not, well, how nice and helpful. How well I have raised this child. All you're thinking is, what do they want? When's that other shoe going to drop? Are we all done cleaning the kitchen? By the way. You think God likes that? There's a, there's a danger. It's, it's, there's been a danger in the body of Christ for the better part of 20 years where people are seeking after God for the things that He can do for them and the things that He can give, him, give them, and there's not enough seeking after God because He's God. That's the root of real faith. Seeking God because He's God and He deserves to be the object of our faith. Not If He never does anything, We'll come back to that in a moment. Some of us are just desperate today. I know that. Some of us need a miracle. We're just like the father, that demon-possessed little boy. He needed a miracle, and he cried out, I believe, but I struggle. I believe, but I've got to push past these things that make me doubt. I, I, I want to believe not in the things I can see, but in you, God. Here's what happened in verse 25. When Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left it. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. Mark's a good guy and everything, but I think he underplays this a little bit here. I mean, an evil spirit shrieks, comes out of the boy, falls down, he looks like he's dead. I don't think a murmur went to the crowd. I think there were people screaming and running and crying and covering their faces, you know, kind of like when we watch a scary movie. Verse 27 says, Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet. And he stood up. God did that. He did it. And he didn't do it in the dad's timing. And he didn't do it the way that the followers of Jesus had tried to do it. And he didn't do it according to my standard. But he did it. Remember the story of the uh, three Hebrew children? They were really older teenagers. Uh, in their 20s, maybe early 20s. 
And, and they loved and served the one true God. But the king of Babylon had built this huge idol, and he wanted everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship. And so, of course, those three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to do that, and instead they kept on worshiping God. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 3. And the king finally said, I'm sick of this. I'm tired of you. I'm, I'm angry and I'm upset. Now I want you guys to bow down and worship this idol right now, or I'm going to kill you by throwing you in the fire. And those three men made one of the greatest faith statements that we will ever hear. They said this, you go ahead and throw us in the fire. But we will not worship your God because our God will deliver us. Now, folks, that's faith. But then they took it to the next level with what they said. Even if he doesn't deliver us, we won't bow down and worship your false god. We will still believe him. Our God can. Our God will. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. And he's still called us to believe. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.